Psalm 39 is where we are in this week. We'll be beginning at verse 6, looking at that second stanza of the psalm, Psalm 39. There's a plague on the loose that impacts between 75% and 90% of Americans today. It's true. I'm guessing that just about every single person here has contracted it at one time or another, maybe multiple times, in fact. Its name, autocorrect. Right? Who's been, who's been hit by the scourge of autocorrect? I say, yeah, see, there you go. We need a healing service. So there you are, innocently typing out a message, right? You're trying to move quickly. Efficiency is key in our culture, time and all of that. Uh, you hit your last character, hit send before you read what you had just written or what you thought you read, only to realize that autocorrect has transformed your message into something very much different. Like, as one newspaper reported, when you try to write, no, I don't, in a text to your mom, and it comes out, no, idiot, which really happened. <laughs> Autocorrect had a particularly bad year on the iPhone in 2017. Many users were hit with two bugs in the software. In one case, the letter I would be replaced with a capital A and then a little box with a question mark in it. Who, who got, I got that one. Did anybody else get that one? All right. And then in the other case, I didn't get this one, but apparently every time you wrote the word it, it would be replaced with capital I period little t, and then sometimes a period after that. Anybody get that one? That was another one they got hit with. There are whole websites dedicated to cataloging the hilarious misadventures of autocorrect. And if you're like me, I don't know, does it seem like autocorrect has become a little more aggressive recently? Has anybody else experienced this? I feel like autocorrect is is out of control right now. I found myself like looking up, how do I rein in autocorrect? And there are ways you can do that, but you're on your own for that. And here is, uh, well, I, I think maybe we could start calling it overcorrect, right? And here's, this is an absolutely true story. As I typed the very word overcorrect in my notes today, autocorrect changed the entry to overcorrect with two T's at the end. So now autocorrect is misspelling words on my behalf. So I don't know what that's about. Well, in Psalm 39, David finds himself in dark days. He's sick, he's discouraged, he's frustrated, and he takes his cares to the Lord. We saw that last week. As he prays and meditates on life, he comes to some important conclusions. First, that our lives on this earth are incredibly short, especially in comparison to eternity. And then second, that God takes an active role in the lives of his people and he works in them changing them from the inside out. Now, part of that work is the work of correction and discipline. And this is the theme that David takes up tonight in the second stanza of the psalm as he continues to consider the brevity of life. Verse 6, David says, Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. David uses pretty haunting words here to describe a life disconnected from God's intervention. This is a description of the human life on its own, apart from God, just in its natural state. The words he employs really are are kind of frightening uh, when you get into it. He says that we as human beings are moving around like phantoms with no substance. That's the image he paints for us, that we're stuck in the dark. 
And when, he, when it says there that he busies himself, themselves in vain, the sense is that we are these apparitions going around moaning and roaring for nothing. That's the, the image he's painting. He's having a bad day, to be sure, but uh, it's kind of a dark and, and scary image that he's constructing for us. Now, this bleak assessment of human life stands in stark contrast to the you only live once, get rich or die trying, I'm going to live forever mentality of the unbelieving world, right? I mean, out there in the world and in the world culture and in, you know, popular understanding, those are sort of the things that, hey, everything about it, life is great. Don't think too long about who you are or where you're going because after all, you're going to encounter as much pleasure as you can, as quick as you can, for as long as you can, and then we'll just put off the fact that we're all going to die at some point. Um, it's interesting. In fact, the word amusement, I learned this, I didn't know this before, but the word amusement, when you break it down, to muse means to think about things, right? To meditate. Last week in the first stanza of the psalm, we saw David spent time musing. He's like, as I mused, I, I started realizing things about life and realizing things about heaven and God and the spiritual world. It, it was a good thing, even though he's in a trying time. Well, amusement, A, when you put A in the front of a word, it means no, atheist, right? Amusement means to not think about things. It's an interesting uh, way of, of, of living life, right? We want to be amused. And the original meaning of that word is, hey, I'm just going to distract myself so I don't have to think. And uh, David is saying here, you know what? We're amusing ourselves to death apart from God if we're not careful here. Now, some might simply accuse David of being depressed or pessimistic at this point. And so he kind of says there, let's take a look at the data. As he says, he heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Uh, this is just reality, right? Pharaohs may have been buried with their gold. Miles David on into the next world. The treasure stayed right where it was, Right? That's why archaeologists go digging in the pyramids and go digging in the desert sands. That's why Indiana Jones went over there to, to find out and braved all of the booby traps and the snakes and everything, right? Because the treasure is still there. They heaped up these treasures for themselves, and yet they don't know who's going to gather them. The phrase here that David uses draws our attention toward Ecclesiastes, right? An entire book devoted to exploring the vanity of life apart from a relationship with God. We don't feel like this psalm is very cheery, and it's true. There's a lot of truth here, a lot of good things to think about, but certainly David's not in a really great time of his life. It's not a joy-filled psalm. Well, man, then we get to Ecclesiastes. It's all like this. It's talking about all the pursuits of life apart from God and my mental pursuits and the pursuits for pleasure and my career pursuits. And Solomon just goes, you know, in aspect after aspect after aspect and, and fleshes out this same idea that David is talking about here. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And so uh, it draws our attention to that book. Now, David is exposing something very important in this verse. And it's that this life is not the more significant one. Now, it feels that way to us. It's hard for us to uh, imagine heaven. We can't wrap our minds around the concept of eternity, right? We are a sensory people. We see and we smell and we touch. But the reality is, the truth is, that the next life is the life that's forever. The next life is the one uh, that is the weightier life, the one that really matters, and the only life of real substance and weight is the life given through Christ, right? Which is why 
the Lord came and he said, hey, I'm going to give you everlasting life, not just after you die. I am going to give you everlasting life right now to live in this life. And so that he's going to transform our living from the moment of salvation forward, not just the moment of our mortal death, if that makes sense. And so the only life that has real meaning and real sustenance is the life given through Christ. And it is an extraordinarily abundant, growing life compared to the wasteful vanity of unbelief that David is talking about here. Now, David's mention here of storing up riches also steers our thoughts toward Jesus' words in Matthew 6. He said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. While inheritors in this life and in this world have to contend with the death tax and probate and settling debts and funeral expenses and more, Scripture tells us definitively that our investments in heaven and in God's kingdom will never be diminished or hijacked. Rather, when we heap up treasure there, the reward is great and that the Lord keeps those things safe and uh, every image we're given of that reward and, and of that return is that when you get to heaven, you're like, what did I do to deserve this? And the Lord said, well, you didn't do anything to deserve it, but I'm a God who loves to give and loves to richly reward. Verse 7 says, and now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. These grim and dismal thoughts of verse 6 led David to hope. Well, it's true. Even in his dark hour, even during intense physical suffering and discomfort, because David was a man with a real relationship with God, he was able to lean upon the confident trust he had in the Lord. This period of suffering was by no means pleasant for him. It's not something he would have chosen for himself, but it didn't destroy his spiritual life. It didn't destroy his relationship with God. He was still able to commune with God and rely on the Lord and lean on what the Lord had done for him. And this is an example of the strength that God gives to sustain his people. There's a worship song sort of making the rounds right now. The chorus goes like this. Strength, you give me strength. You lift my weary heart. You're the fire in my veins. Strength, you give me strength. You raise me up again. I will never be the same. And that's the work of God in our lives. It's him giving us strength. It's him transforming us from the inside out. It's him being the lifter of our head, right? That's another idea from the Psalms. And it's that kind of supply and connection with God that enabled David to write the hope of verse 7 after the gloom of verse 6, right? The gloom of verse 6 and the gloom of life that he was in didn't destroy his relationship with God and cause him to throw up his hands and say, well, it's all over. I guess there is no God. That's not the case at all. Yeah, he was struggling and he had some issues he needed to work through and he needed to call out to God and he had these cares and frustrations. That's all fine. And we looked at that last week about how the Lord isn't afraid of prayers like that. But when that dark day came, when those storm clouds gathered over David's life, it didn't destroy his spiritual life, right? He was able to continue to rely on the Lord and lean on him and trust the Lord. He says, you know what, Lord, all of this stuff is going on. I'm deeply depressed with what's going on in my life and what I see going on in the world around me, but my hope is in you and I'm gonna keep waiting on you just like I would do when I am being blessed and when things aren't going so poorly in my circumstances. 
Now we should note here that David's expectation wasn't in a particular action or resolution. What did he say? He says, my hope is in you. It was in the Lord himself. He was content and resolved to wait for the Lord to arrive in one way or another. I mean, he, he not only trusted that the Lord would deliver him or could deliver him, he just trusted the Lord. I mean, throughout David's praying, it's clear that he, he thinks, Lord, you know what to do. I don't know what to do. I need some help right now. I need deliverance. I need rescue. I need to be pulled out of this you know, uh, state that I'm in. But you know what to do, Lord, so come do what you want to do. That's so often the, the attitude of David's heart in his prayers to the Lord in these Psalms. Waiting is never something we get excited about. I don't like to wait. I don't think any of you like to wait either. But you know, it's a regular part of the Christian life. It's a needful part of the Christian life to wait on the Lord. The theological word book of the Old Testament says this. It says, waiting with steadfast endurance is a great expression of faith. It means enduring patiently in confident hope that God will decisively act for the salvation of his people. Waiting involves the very essence of a person's being, his soul. Those who wait in true faith are renewed in strength so they can continue to serve the Lord while looking for his saving work. And so that's waiting in the Christian life. It's not just sitting there and letting the clock spin around. Um, as New, Christ, New Testament believers, we know that Christian waiting is much more than just running out the clock, right? A lot of things in this life, if you're waiting in line at the DMV or you're waiting on hold with the whatever company, it's just running out the clock, right? Your wait time is one million minutes. Okay. This happens to me a lot when, you know, if I have to do tech support or something and there's like a a chat, you always think, ooh, a live chat. This will be quick. Wrong. It's like you're number 18 in the queue and everybody's just typing and stuff and you wait and wait and wait and wait and eventually you start doing something else, right? And then you come back and you look at your window and in in like a one second second period, the guy said, hello, this is whoever. May I help you? I guess you're not there. Goodbye. And like, no, I I waited for so long. A Christian waiting, spiritual waiting is more than just sitting around. We're not just running out the clock here. We're called to an active waiting, an active hope. You look at the parables for um, a demonstration and examples of, of what this looks like in the Christian life, right? The sower had a lot to do while he was waiting for the harvest, right? You're a farmer, you've got to sow the seed, you've got to tend your field, you've got to water, you've got to take care of that kind of stuff. Uh, you look at the, the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, well, they had a long night of waiting. It was so long, in fact, that they all fell asleep, but they, some of them kept their lamps oiled and their wicks trimmed. And so even when that fatigue came on, they were still ready because they had made themselves ready and they kept up at what they were supposed to be doing. And so when the bridegroom came, they were ready for it. Later in that same chapter in Matthew, we hear the parable of the talents about those servants who are given jobs to do and then the master goes away for a time. And while they're waiting for the return of their master, those who were faithful were about the master's business and they were investing in the work of the Lord and accomplishing the work of their master. Uh, These are the images of what it means for us to wait for the arrival of the Lord as we live this life, that we keep ourselves prepared, that we are personally about the business of our king, and that we are applying ourselves in what ways we can uh, for his glory and for his service. 
Verse 8 says this, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. David's philosophical thoughts about life are now becoming personal, right? He's been thinking big thoughts about the reality of the human condition, about you know, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a believer, not a believer. But here, uh, his thoughts become very personal. He, he, he takes a look within at his own heart and his own life. And as usual, he admits his own lawlessness and imperfection. And he asks the Lord for rescue. But here we're reminded that our sin has consequences. And the stories of the Old Testament that we know so well um, are stories of often of the consequences of sin, right? David with Bathsheba and, and all of these other examples, Abraham and Sarah lying about, you know, well, she's my sister, Lot moving to Sodom. There's a lot of these examples that show us the consequences of poor decisions and the consequences of sin. And here David is, is speaking poetically, but he's also teaching us that our sin has consequences, not only in our own lives and consequences on our own connection with the Lord, but it also has a lot of consequences on our testimonies as representatives of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we represent our king to a lost and dying world. And, you know, people rightly talk about how, hey, we're ambassadors for our king. And that's true. The Bible talks about also, we're also priests. We connect, you know, God to man, man to God by explaining the gospel and things like that. And so you are representative, if you're a Christian, of Jesus Christ. And while we can't do that perfectly, none of us are perfect by a long shot, we are asked to do it circumspectly, right? I mean, you look at men and women in the Bible, um, lot of, they're all flawed, but you look at some of them who are um, uh, very circumspect, men like Daniel. Daniel is by no means perfect, but you look at his example and you say, yeah, there's a man that walked circumspectly. Or you look in the New Testament at these examples of different people in the book of Acts who who said, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm going to do so circumspectly even uh, when it's difficult. And even though I'm imperfect, I'm going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out this life. And so um, while we don't always represent the Lord perfectly, we are to do it circumspectly so that we don't bring a reproach on the name of Jesus. What's the first thing the world loves to do when a prominent Christian leader or figure you know, falls into sin? Now, it's not that we expect every Christian to be perfect. Of course not. We understand that in the church. I'm not perfect. I, you know, I, we all understand that. But when a prominent Christian makes a prominent mistake or, or choice to sin in some way or another, the first thing the world loves to do is, is make a mockery of the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, Mr. Christian, look at this guy. Look at what he did. And it's in a reproach not only on the individual, but on our king. And so David is mindful of how um, not only our sin impacts our lives and the lives of the people directly around us and our connection with the Lord, our intimacy with him, but it also impacts our testimony in the wider world as well. Now in verses 9 through 11, we get into some of the specifics of why David was experiencing the trouble he's talking about in this psalm says in verse 9, I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Now, the New Living Translation gives us this verse in a way that I think makes a little more sense of what David was saying. It says there, I am silent before you. I won't say a word for my punishment is from you. And so 
gives us sort of a clearer sense of, sense of what David's trying to say. He realizes that at least some of his affliction has its source in heaven. He was being disciplined because of some sin, and he doesn't specify what that sin was. And rather than argue with God or contend with God about it, David chooses self-control, and he acknowledges that God was right to bring this correction into his life. He says, hey, I'm not going to say anything about that. I've got nothing to say. I've got no argument to make. This punishment is from you. Now, the day-to-day experience of a New Testament Christian like you and I is different than the day-to-day experience of an Old Testament Jew, especially when that Jew is the king of Israel, right? I mean, we live in a different, what we would call dispensation, a dispensation of grace, not the dispensation under the law. But correction and discipline are still part of God's program for his people. We, we may see some of these things or, or how God responded very tangibly in the Old Testament. You know, we see um, him responding in, in, in some strong ways when his people sin. You think of Moses, he strikes the rock there and God says pretty quickly, okay, you're done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill you early. You're not going in the promised land. Whoa, okay, <laughs> that's some real discipline. Or you look at David and you know his sin with Bathsheba. Hey, I'm gonna kill your son because of your sin. And here, whatever was going on in David's life, David said, you know what? I sinned and now the Lord is punishing me for it through physical affliction, right? <laughs> And so we sort of look back at that and we think, well, man, good thing the Lord doesn't do any of that anymore. But in reality, correction and discipline are still part of God's program. It's a consistent truth in the epistles. And Jesus himself says it in the revelation that God loves you. And that means because he loves you, he's going to rebuke you and correct you and me as his people. And when that happens, we want to respond in humility like David does here in verse 9. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, If the king of kings lays his hand on our backs, let us, beloved, lay our hands on our mouths. Good uh, counsel from the prince of preachers there. Verse 10, Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. Agreeing with God didn't mean David couldn't pray for relief or mercy, and that's exactly what he does. So on the one hand, he acknowledges, he's like, hey, this is on some level my fault. I sinned, and now I'm receiving just punishment for that sin. And then on the other hand, he prays for relief and prays for mercy. He says, hey, Lord, can you please, can, you, can we stop doing this discipline thing? And that's okay. He, he prays, and, and that was fine. But let's note a couple things from this verse, verse 10. First... Despite the fact that David feels crushed by this discipline, and he is saying, hey, Lord, this discipline is too much for me. That's how he feels emotionally in the moment. Yet he does not see God as his enemy, right? He doesn't see God as his adversary. He, he said the Lord is his hope. He says, Lord, you're my hope. You're who I'm waiting for. You're all that I want. And I'm asking you to, to relieve this discipline. And so he didn't receive this correction and suddenly God was his enemy or his adversary or anything like that. He still loved the Lord and he still knew the Lord loved him. Second, while God is always gracious and always full of tender kindness toward his people, sometimes his discipline is not just a slap on the wrist. We get offended when in our justice system, they only give out a slap on a wrist when someone is very clearly guilty, right? Of course, if, if I'm the guy before the judge, I'm hoping he doesn't throw the book at me. 
And, and the same is true of the Lord, right? I mean, we, we kind of want a slap on the wrist all the time, no matter what. But in reality, God's disciplines are not always just a, you know, now don't do that again, the sort of parent in target form of discipline. That's not always how it is. You know, a lot of times that is how it is. I mean, the Lord allows us to screw up kind of a lot, right? Uh, He allows us to disobey him and not live up to what he's asked us to do. And he's really gracious and really kind. But sometimes the Lord's discipline comes in a pretty severe way. Uh, I mean, the Lord killed people in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. There was something happened in the, you know, in the mind of God where he says, okay, in this situation, that's enough. We're going to kill these people and remove them from earth. I'm going to take them home right now. I mean, and that was a discipline. Ananias and Sapphira weren't unbelievers. They were believers, part of the church, and they were struck dead by God because of discipline. Uh, Same thing was happening in the church of Corinth. Paul said outright, he says, hey, you know what? Some of you guys are sick and some of you guys are dying because the Lord is disciplining you. And so this, in reality, may not be as frequent or as prominent as we think of it in the Old Testament, but this is still part of the program of God's discipline according to the New Testament. Sometimes lampstands were removed from a church. Well, that's what Jesus said in the book of the Revelation. He's writing to the churches, and in one of those letters, in a time of correction, he says, hey, guys, if you don't correct this issue, these issues that I've lined out, I love you, but I'm going to remove your lampstand." And that's a really serious discipline, a really uh, serious consequence. And so correction and discipline are are very real parts of how God interacts with us still. He's going to do so with grace and he's going to do so with loving kindness, but he's not just going to let people uh, sin with impunity and refuse to bring correction to them in one way or another. And so this is an aspect of our walk with the Lord that we need to take seriously. God loves us. And so when necessary, he's going to rebuke us and bring discipline and correct us in some way or another. Verse 11, when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. So here David properly categorizes what the Lord was doing in his life. It was correction, right? He says, you correct man for iniquity. It wasn't revenge, it wasn't torture, it wasn't malice, it wasn't cruelty. It was God working to make right something that had gone wrong in David's life. He he wasn't mad at David, he was correcting a problem, and David properly categorizes it here. It was God continuing to transform his son here, who, who he loved, into a more glorious treasure and workmanship. David understood, hey, God's my, you know, my father, he's my shepherd, I love him, he loves me, and, and he's correcting me here. He's, he's reworking an issue in my life to continue to fashion me into his workmanship. Now, at the moment here in this psalm, David isn't cheered up, but he has made a profound discovery about life. It is only through the hands-on work of God that our lives will not be wasted. The things the natural man uh, you know, thinks are beautiful and delightful and meaningful are in reality just the noisy groans of a phantom passing through a dark graveyard. That's what David says. That's the picture he's painting here. But the child of God is very different. The life of a child of God is a place of abundant, eternal work, great work, glorious work. 
And through that work, God transforms us and conforms us into his image. And like any great remodel, there's a lot of work that will need to be done. You can't just throw up a bunch of shiplap and make it better, right? I mean, the Lord's doing a real transformation uh, of our lives from the inside out. And some of the work that God wants to do in us is going to be uncomfortable to us. And our natural tendency will be to want to avoid it or wriggle out of it. David wanted out from under this discipline. And it's okay to pray to the Lord for relief and for rescue and for an end to discipline. But we want to be in a mindset where we recognize that God's correction is not a bad thing. It is a sign of his love. And it is a sign that, that, that he is doing a good work in our lives. It is a good and beneficial thing uh, for us. You know, the Olympics just ended. There's always a lot of focus on the incredible dedication of the athletes. They do always do these profiles of them and, and they talk about the things they go through in order to be able to compete at this high level. You know, having this sometimes once in a lifetime opportunity to see if they're the best, all that kind of stuff. It's always great. Let's say, imagine for a moment that your dream was to compete in the luge at the Olympics. It's some people's dream. But let's say that that's your dream. You decided that the purpose of your life is to compete in the luge at the Olympics. You know, it's kind of a silly sport on one level, but when you step back from the silliness, it's a sport that requires real precision in a lot of ways. Weight and balance and angles and nudges while you're sliding down an ice track at 90 miles per hour. You know, and people die doing the luge. So I think somebody might have died at the... At the Uh, Olympics in Sochi last time doing the luge because of an error, because of a mistake. People don't even die playing Olympic hockey, right? People don't die doing figure skating or ice dancing, but people die running the luge. Now, imagine that you, the luger, you had this coach, right? Because everybody has has a coach. Imagine this coach never corrected your form. He never showed you where you were stepping wrong. He didn't help you get into the proper shape or condition or mentality to keep you alive as you careened down that course. If that was the case, he wouldn't be a coach very long and you wouldn't be a loser very long, right? If you survived, it wouldn't be a good life. (laughs) Now, compound the situation by by imagining that, that, that this coach is your loving father who loves you and who, you know, is your dad and wants the best for you. And you're, not, you're no amateur. You were born to lose. It's the purpose of your life. Well, in that case, of course, you would need correction and adjustment and discipline as you grow in this life, right? They're necessary things in order to make you the champion to get that gold medal. We all understand that. Well, God's correction in our lives isn't a nuisance like autocorrect. And it isn't an overcorrect. God's not, you know, overbearing. He's not going overboard when he corrects us. It is a sign of his extraordinary love for us. And it's a sign that the Lord is making something truly substantial out of your life. That he's delivering you from sin. That he's bringing purpose to your daily living. That he's renewing your mind with his power. That correction is a process by which the Lord draws us closer to him and conforms us more into the image of his son as he continues to glorify us. That's what the Lord's doing. And so we don't need to be distressed by God's discipline when it comes to us or by the shortness of this life. 
we can take comfort in what has been revealed about God and his word, his grace and his kindness, his compassion, his care toward us. And we can invite him to do his work as we commune with him. And we can be like David, inviting the Lord to correct us. We may not have to enjoy it. David certainly didn't. We can even pray for the Lord to bring us relief. David did. But David was always inviting the Lord, come do the work you want to do. Come make me right in those areas that I'm not right. And that's why we look back at a man like David and say, there's a man after God's heart. Because he agreed with God and he invited God to do what the Lord wanted to do in his life. And so we can invite God to do his work as we commune with him, waiting for his arrival to take us home to our real lives in eternity.